What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 161 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with my old friend Katrina Mitchell. Katrina is a single mother living with her son in Kampala, Uganda. She is an expat writer who published the book Path to Nabulagula, which chronicles her life from age 16 to 23 and her time spent in Kenya and Uganda. Throughout the episode, we talk about her choice to move her and her son back to Uganda, Uganda's budding economy, and life for a single mother with a nine-year-old son in Kampala, Uganda. It was really cool catching up with my old friend Katrina. It sounds like she's got a really cool lifestyle for herself where she gets to continue to write, try her hand at different entrepreneurial ventures, and live a lifestyle that she absolutely loves. Please, if you're a first-time listener, pull out that phone and hit the subscribe button. If you like this episode, I sure would appreciate a five-star rating or even a comment on what you liked about it. If you haven't yet gotten a Misfits and Rejects t-shirt, please feel free to go in the show notes and click in the link I provided there, which will take you to misfitsandrejects.com backslash shop where you can get one. And with that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Katrina Mitchell. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by my old friend, Katrina Mitchell, uh, somebody who reached out to me that I hadn't heard from in many, many years, and she reached out from Uganda. And so when I started researching a little bit more about her online, realizing that this is an awesome story that I should bring to the audience because she's a single mom, just moved back to Uganda with her nine-year-old son, and it's like, if she can do it, so can you. So Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We have not spoken in probably 25 years. Yeah, I don't even remember the last time. <laughs> it's been a long time. It's got to be high school. We just had our 20th, but I think even in high school, like we've known each other since like second grade. But I mean, high school, we are definitely friends, acquainted, but we are definitely, I think, in two different groups and would see each other in the hall, say hello, but there wasn't tons of conversations. Yeah, definitely. I feel like this today we talked more than like, I don't even know when. <laughs> I'm glad that we reconnected because we did talk pre-show about our life paths and how I think we both agreed they've probably been parallel. So the fact that they're crossing now, I think is probably the right time for both of us to really develop yeah. a cool relationship. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for joining me. And you are in Kampala. Kampala. And mm -hmm. This is the place that you've been returning, you said, for the last 15 years, and now you've made the move back permanently? Yes. I uh, went to an international university where I got to go to school all over, and I did my senior year in Nairobi, Kenya, and then I came to visit Uganda for the intramural games. It's where all the East African universities you know, challenge each other in sports. It's really, really awesome and fun. And I went to the public university here in Kampala, and I was like, it was just people are super friendly. It's just this beautiful, beautiful, lush, pristine jungle, tropical environment. I was like, why am I living in Kenya when there's Uganda right here? So I just fell in love with it immediately. Yeah, I fell in love with it immediately. Um, and that university, it's a huge, it's like UCLA or a huge university. Um, it's very beautiful. And I, it's still one of my favorite places. Um, Uganda has a, is a city of many hills. So that um, university takes a hill. And so, yeah, that is Makarere is the name of that school. But, yeah, I mean, Uganda is just a magical place. It's it, And I've been to many other places, other parts of Africa. And it's definitely my favorite for for sure. Well, I'm, I love having you on because I think from the American, American audience perspective, you know, Africa is in the media at least perceived as a dangerous place, a place that's riddled with disease and poverty and a place that – a single white female taking her son to live is not the safest idea, which I love having someone like you on to really discredit those sort of stereotypes and opinions. Um, what is it like on the ground in Kampala, Uganda right now as we speak? Well, I mean, just to comment on your, your statement, I would just say that it's like every country and even every part of the country is just different. So yes, there are places that like that. So 
I wouldn't say it's not accurate, but then there's places that are totally different, you know? And so it's just like, you know, how big America is. You can't really make the comparison between, you know, New, New Orleans and San Francisco. I mean, they're just so different, you know? So it's just stereotypes. You, we always have to catch ourselves doing them. People of all cultures, all places do it, you know? So you, Kampala, Uganda right now, it's a booming society. It's growing. It's such a rapid pace. I came for about a month and a half last summer and the society has almost revolutionized just from yes, last year to this year. Um, they can do all sorts of things on their phone. You can pay all your bills on your phone. They have like mobile money. You can transfer money in between people. Um, it's a, and so in some ways they have some technology that we don't have in the U S that is way more efficient and advanced which is interesting, but then other things that they don't have. So um, they have Uber here, for example, now. Um, there's just a lot. It's really progressing fast. Um, the city, there's a traffic jam all over the city because the city is growing at such a fast pace, and the, they're not building roads fast enough. Um, housing prices are skyrocketing. I would say to get rent a house in a nice neighborhood in Uganda last year was about $300 a month. Now it's like $500 a month, which is a challenge I'm trying to overcome right now because it's like I have to increase my budget. Um, yeah, so it's it's hard to just say in a sentence, but there's a lot going on here. But it's awesome. I mean, it's like a really amazing nightlife culture. I have to say that's one of my favorite things. Like people here party till 9 p.m. to 9 a.m. Like they'll party all night. Um, and there's a lot of like people listen to Caribbean music, like dance hall, like all sorts of, and everyone dances. It's totally different than the U S where like maybe 20% of guys dance. Like here it's like 89% of guys dance. It's so fun. Anyways. It, so there's a vibrant nightlife scene. There's a thriving economy. It's just, it's doing better than ever it really is. That's so cool. God, I'm just, I'm going to try to route one of my flights through Uganda, come visit you and see this scene because um, I saw that in Hanoi, Vietnam when I was just there in February and not that Hanoi has been off the, the beaten path for a long time, but it's definitely a city that like you just described, just blowing up so fast and just to get there and experience it now, it's going to be different in six months, you know, and be rad to, rad to see those changes. Yeah. In Uganda, for example, they just discovered oil in the West part of the country. So they believe in the next few years that um, there's going to be a lot of money flowing into the country um, because of that. Or America's so going to start a war change. and try to uh, overtake <laughs> the government and insert another government. <laughs> yeah. Um, or the Chinese will just take over, which is what's happening, basically. Interesting. But, yeah. So in the sense that there's a lot of Chinese emigrating there and starting companies or big companies are coming to Uganda to to for tax reasons. Uh, I feel like when it, when you talk about foreign direct investment, um, historically it was like Europe and then maybe America, and now um, it, it's coming from China because of their policies and they have a, they spend more money on it and they're very laxed with how they regular oversee it i would say re relative to the u.s so um but um china is just expanding their power all over the world which i'm sure is more evident in southeast asia than anywhere but you know i mean they're now it, it's all over africa as well just in the last 10 years yeah that lax sort of regulation is where i think a lot of companies try to capitalize you know, for those, the short term sort of like, Oh, we can pollute as much as we want. Let's go make as much money as we can before the government gets keen to it. And then they slap regulations on us. Do you feel like that could be accurate? It's tough because, um, I, I think it's situational, but, um, I think government, you know, people want to hold their government accountable to do better. And I think they can do better, you know, because the U S um, we have our own examples of, you know, California can be very effective at regulating. Obviously, in Flint, Michigan, they didn't do a very good job of regulating the water there. So, I mean, it kind of varies. So, I think it's both sides. It's the government should be better at regulating it and the companies should be better at regulating themselves. But at the end of the day, 
can you really expect companies to do that? I don't know. No, <laughs> they no. don't really do it anywhere, you know. <laughs> no, great answer, dude. Great answer. I loved how you, you played that line right there. Very well done. Well, that um, I feel like I face that every day. People, I meet other expats here in Uganda, and they'll like talk shit about something like democracy or whatever the topic is. And I just like try to bring up an example from the U.S. because I just I see U.S. is so imperfect. Not that I don't love being American. I love Amer- America. But sometimes you don't see your own flaws as well, especially until you step outside. And then so I just, you know, think just have this frame of mind where Uganda has all these problems and America is great or vice versa. It's just so like simplifying it on a level that is not accurate. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. Um, what are the expats like there? Is there a lot of one culture that's been there for years? Like, I don't know my history well enough. Was it a colony of the French, British? Yeah. What was there? No, the like, that's the that's literally the best part of Uganda because my experience is always a comparison to Kenya. I was in Kenya for like about nine months and I moved to Uganda about a year the first time. So just kind of comparing those first two years around that same time of life, which was like 21 and 22, um, was that Kenya was a British colony, large white settlement class, um, and um, Kenyans were really mistreated, obviously, by the colonial regime. And then when they left, they installed the Indians in power, and the Indians continued onto that on that path where um, – so they had a very negative experience with foreigners, and they uh, – treat foreigners a certain way as a result and even i'm actually friends with a kenyan guy here and he said the white and the um kenyan people they don't mix at all really socially in nightclubs and whatnot it's really still separated which is shocking to hear here in uganda uganda was um never colonized it was a protectorate and essentially the british wanted to extract resources and taxes and they just used the baganda kingdom which is the one where the capital city is now and the largest one as of right now um, to extract those things for them. And obviously like, you know, those British people, they don't like like those tropical climates. They prefer those temperate ones like, you know, South Africa and Kenya, et cetera. So um, too many mosquitoes over here in the, in the tropics. <laughs> but um, so uh, there was no, and the, the local culture is very, very, very welcoming to hospitable to foreigners. There, and I can give you a million examples of little actions that you would experience when you come, which I can't wait for you to come. You should totally experience it yourself. But um, so people, foreigners and white people are really treated welcome, wonderfully and very, very much welcomed. And, um, you know, if the, you people will welcome you into their home, they'll, they'll share a meal with you. I mean, this is um, and if they're experiencing anything negative harassment or whatnot, um, they would defend you like no other culture that I've experienced. So um, people are very warm, I would say, um, and very kind hearted. And, um, but when I came here about 15, I think it's actually 18 years ago, um, there was no, almost no expats, very, very, very few. It was, I, the whole year I was here, I probably saw like a handful of white people the whole time. And then since then, there's been a ton of, a large expat class. And a lot of that is because Kenya has become growingly unstable and Uganda has become much um, more stable. So the United Nations, World Bank, um, World Food Program, all, all these big organizations are running programs in South Sudan and Somali, Somalia and um, just various re- Congo, various regional countries. So their base now is Uganda. And I would say up until about 10 years ago, they were all based in Kenya and now they've all moved to Uganda. Um, and like Uganda has space, it's cheaper. They air, in the airport, they get they, the United Nations has their own airstrip. So when you come, you'll see tons of United Nations planes. Um, so because of those organizations, it, and there is a large expat class here now. Um, but they totally like just mingle with like the locals, like anyone, like you go to a night, I, most of the places I go, there's like not really any white people, but there's a few that are cool that I've gone to. And you just see people like being regular together. There's no, everyone is mixed together. There's no, no one's separated the way you would see in Kenya. So that's another awesome thing. Another awesome thing about Uganda is like, there's a good portion of the population that's Christian and there's a good portion that is Muslim and they have like no conflict, no issues at all. Like people just mix together seamlessly. I think religion is like secondary to like it for when it comes to identity to tribe and other things. But 
I would say just generally, like people coexist very peacefully here. And there, and like for example, in, Ka- in Kenya, they have a lot of tribal politics where people are killing each other, especially around election time. And here, you know, it, it's just there might be something to a very small extent, but um, for the most part, people coexist equally. And then when you even look at the U.S., the Trumpers versus you know the liberals, <laughs> and you see the conflict that we have even in our society. I mean, it's just relative. I mean, I feel like people coexist quite peacefully here for sure, and that's something I love about it. No, you sold me for sure. It sounds like uh, <laughs> a few places I've been recently that yeah, I really want to get back to, and those environments um, intrigue me the most because you don't hear about them a lot, and sometimes you hear a lot of negative things about them from people who have never been. One of the, like Myanmar, for example, even though they're like a few years back, they're committing genocide. Like it's one of the coolest places I've ever been. You know, with you making the decision to take uproot and take your son to Uganda to make a life for yourself. I know you've been trying to get back. What took so long? Like, why did it take 15 years for you to make that happen? Um, well, there was like a long journey on the way. Um, I got married. I was with my ex-husband for like nine years. Then I got divorced. And then I had a two-year-old and I was a single mom. So, um, and I came back home to California to be close to family, which I feel like is kind of a predictable path way. And then I just tried to stabilize myself, which took a little bit of time. And then I entered Pepperdine's MBA program. And I worked full time and did that full time and was a single mother and did all the other struggles of living in California to survive financially. So um, that was like a three year period, which was extremely difficult, (laughs) but I made it through somehow. Um, And I did the entrepreneurship program and I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I and, you know, because I rather than working towards someone else's dream, I want to work towards my own dream. And I know that I'm very intelligent and extremely hardworking. And I just kind of feel like with those qualities and my sheer determination, I'm sure I could figure out how to make it. I just have to invest in myself and take the risk and take the chance, right? So that whole stabilizing, getting my MBA was almost like four or five years after that. And then um, I started thinking about how to move to Uganda pretty much um, from then on. And it just, I came last year for, and I ca- tried to find a job here. I didn't find one. So I was basically ready to move last year, but I didn't find a job. So I ended up going back home. And then I had a few entrepreneur friends in LA that want me to work on startups with them. So I did that and um, didn't, wasn't quite making money. So then I just decided okay, I've saved up a certain chunk of money that I felt like I needed to come here and I've come and it's it's been a roller coaster so far, but I'm on my way. Can I ask how much you saved to make that move with your son? Five, 5000 I love it. I love it. Hear that, folks? She saved only $5,000 <laughs> to move her was son a lot. and her to Uganda. <laughs> I know it's like relative. Some people think it's a lot. Some people think it's not that much. Well, in but... California, it's so expensive to live that it's hard to save anything. You know how I it know. is. It's so expensive. But it's, I think for a lot of people, listeners, that you know, starting a life summer with $5,000 is like crazy. Like that's not enough, you know, but I love that you took that leap and you're doing it and making it happen. One clarification I'd love to circle back on is you said you were married for nine years and it sounded like you were outside of California when you had your child. Do you just want to let us know where yes. that was? I was in Abu Dhabi for three years. You were in Abu yeah, Dhabi and he for was- three years. Yeah, and he was born. Well, actually, yeah, this kind of ties into the teaching thing, too. My ex-husband was a teacher, and I wanted to, we were living in Laguna, having the great lifestyle, but still couldn't even save literally a dollar a month, because it's so expensive. And um, he was a teacher, and you know, teachers in California don't make anything, especially if you want to live in Orange County. So I was wanted to get abroad, and I was like, why don't you... Um, apply for this teaching job in Abu Dhabi because they pay the same that you're making now, if not more. They pay for your housing. They pay for a plane ticket home every, you know, year. They pay for your furnishing of your home. They, you know, they like you don't have any expenses when you get there, and you get get like fifty thousand or something, you know. And I was like, it sounds awesome. So we applied, and he got it. And then we were there for three years. My son was there, born there, and. 
I mean, I don't know if that's another episode, but um, mm-hmm. you can really make a good living because I know other teachers that were like two of them working there. When they were from California, they saved a hundred thousand in two years. You, know, you get a two or three year contract, save a hundred thousand, come back to California. That's your down payment on your house. Because as teachers, there's no way you could save a hundred thousand dollar down payment other than going and working somewhere like that. And it, a lot of other people go to work in Korea too, but it's you pays less. Right. What were you doing? Were you just a stay at home mom for those three years? Um, no, I worked for um, I did. I worked for a, the culture department of the government promoting Emirati culture. So I did like finance there, but that was dope because I like met a bunch of local people. I experienced the culture. I participated in teaching awareness about the culture. You know, it's very, it's a, it's a very mysterious little known culture. There's only, they're only 20% of their own country. They're a small percent of the population. They're Bedouins. And they're fascinating, extraordinary people. And there's a lot of um, misconceptions out in negative. Talk about having negative stereotypes, man. Like even the people that live there and have lived there for generations have negative stereotypes because they don't know any locals. You know, there's so few locals that you can go to your job and not really know any locals or be friends with any locals. And I had the fortune of getting pregnant in the first month I was there. So as a pregnant woman in their society you're um, like, you're doing, you're serving your purpose on the planet, you know? And, but I would say pregnant women are really adored, you know, and treated really, really well. So all the Emirati women that I worked with just took me under their wing and treated me like a sister. And I, and I, I'm, if I hadn't been pregnant, I don't think I would have been lucky enough to have that experience. So yeah, I'm going to write a whole book on that someday. (laughs) How people misjudge Muslim women completely. (laughs) Oh, God, I know there's so much to talk about because you do have a book, which we'll get to in a minute. I'd like to just clarify one thing that I was confused on. So Amirati people are a culture in Abu Dhabi. And then- so there's the United the – Yen- oh, sorry to interrupt. No, there's, a United Eber- there's a United Arab Emirates, okay. which is kind of like our 13 colonies back in the day. So they're just separate emirates. They're kind of run somewhat independently, but they're one country. And so, for example, Dubai is the neighboring emirate. Mm-hmm. And then Abu Dhabi is the, but um, those Emirates get together and they pick one leader for the whole entire country. And the leader for that country is um, the crown prince, I hope I'm saying that correctly, of Abu Dhabi. And Abu Dhabi is by far the wealthiest Emirate as well. And, you know, Abu Dhabi, they always say Abu Dhabi is given Dubai money to keep them afloat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Dubai is so much more well-known, which is kind of funny. But yeah, Abu Dhabi is a very beautiful um, really nice place. Very, very nice. It reminds me of Orange County. It reminds me of Irvine at some areas. <laughs> and then culturally, everyone's Bedouin, or is that a small sect of the culture there? So basically, the local people, their name are Emiratis. Okay. And Emiratis are like the people, not just in Abu Dhabi, but all of the United Arab Emirates, but they're only 20%. So, um, you know, just... They have a really fast growing economy and they have a lot of capital, but not, they don't have the labor. So they, you know, bring in the labor. So I would say there's a huge Indian population, a huge Filipino population and a bunch of people from Europe and Australia. Very rare to find an American. It's not as many as Americans. There's a lot of Australians. I had my first job. I I worked for an Australian and the second job I had, I worked for an Australian company. So that was interesting. And then, so after three years, (laughs) Did that take its toll on the relationship and you came back to the States or or could you mind sharing what happened there? No, I mean, it was like an ultimate failure in the relationship independently from anything else. But um, Abu Dhabi is one of those places that it depends on what you like in life. For me, I'm like a thrill seeker Mm -hmm. and it's kind of a small place. And for me, it just gets boring after like three years. Like that's where I maxed out. I mean, a lot of people tend to stay there for their contracts for two to three years because they have employment contracts that last that long. But people I knew who stay there longer, they call it leaving the sandbox. You're stuck in the sandbox, but once every three months you go to Sri Lanka, you go to Thailand, like people go to Sri Lanka and Thailand, like, and, or maybe India every three to six months. And you could just, from Dubai, it's a very cheap flight to Thailand or Sri Lanka. And you just go there, chill in a resort, take a break, you know, do what you want to do or go to Europe. Like when I lived there, we went to like, 
Amsterdam twice. We went to Italy. We went to Spain a few times. You know, it's just like so easy to hop over to Europe. When you're in Dubai, you can fly almost anywhere cheaply. That's like the awesome thing about living there. Yeah, I've flown through there. It's not a pretty decent airport too. Um, yeah. And so you came back and you started a new life for yourself with your son and you just sound like kind of struggling, really, really want to become an entrepreneur. Um, not where, where were you focusing your energy within the entrepreneurial space? Like what were you trying to develop? Well, I wanted, well, basically I was working at um, PIMCO. I don't know if you know PIMCO, but it's um, in Newport. Firm, um, it's an investment firm. It's one of the largest in the world. And um, I was around a bunch of MBAs and they were like, oh, you should totally get your MBA. And we're like, we'll pay for like half of it, you know, like a good part of it. You know, they, I don't know how much they ended up paying for, but they give like 10,000 a year or something towards it, you know? And then this, I was like, eh, maybe I'll do it. And then Pepperdine was like, well, we'll give you like 10,000 a year. So you only have to pay like a fraction to get an MBA. So I was like, Oh, well, that totally makes financial sense. How can I say no to that? <laughs> but eh, it was hard, man. So then but, when you um, did get it, your MBA, I mean, and you're obviously interested in entrepreneurship, like where were you looking to start? What were you going to start? So part of that program, you have to start. So you do two years of like, or you do the first part in core classes, and then you just do like one year in the entrepreneurship program. And it's a special program that actually – if I could brag for a minute, cause I feel very proud about it, no matter how lame it sounds, it's in the top 10 on like us news and world report. And it's literally the only program and the only school that's not an Ivy league school. And the reason why is because so many people like are successful coming out of that program. And the reason why that is, is because they force you to start a business like la the last year. So you go through and you take classes and you start the business. So the business that I started was um, ratenightlife.com, which is there. So check it out. <laughs> But um, the concept is, is it's for like bars and nightclubs um, where it's like Yelp, but you just go there and you look at videos and pictures and there's like a very simple rating system. So if you want to like check out a place where you go out rather than like spending 10 minutes reading because I figure like youth nowadays don't want to read. You just go there, like you like look, spend like two sec, two minutes, like looking at the videos or whatever. And then you can like, you know, if it's like an Asian club or like, you know, you know what the scene is, you know, it just says it all in the video. So I actually, I'm working on doing that for Uganda right now, Kampala, because they don't have Yelp here. They don't have anything like that here. And there it's like mobile. It's, it's all about mobile nowadays. So yeah, we'll see if it works. I, I'm going to start by promoting DJs. I'm excited. That's cool. You should get Steve Aoki over there. I know, right? <laughs> totally. He went, he went to high school. I don't school know how I've been... <laughs> Did he? Yeah, yeah. I'm try I've been trying to get him on the show for years, and like I've been talking to his like <laughs> business managers, and it's so hard to get him on. But he's also on Joe Rogan. So, wow. When you made uh, RateNightLife.com, I mean, what did you sell it? Like, sounds like you're not involved with that anymore. No, I'm still doing. I'm doing for Uganda now. Like, so you still but, own the one in LA? Yeah, I do. Yes, okay. I do. And you make money off um, of advertising just, or like affiliates? How do you make money on that? Well, I haven't been able to figure out how to make money off of it. So <laughs> it's just there. And that's what I'm still trying to figure out, basically. Like that's the hard part about being an entrepreneur. It's like you have an idea, you put it in place, but how much money can it really make? And even if you do make money, if it's an idea that's easy to copy – Someone else can just figure out how to do it just like you six months later. So that's kind of the challenge with coming up with something truly innovative. And you need to keep pivoting and you need to keep working on it. That's kind of what we learned in school is that it's a, it's a constant labor of love. But at the same time, sometimes maybe you abandon something and you try something else and then you come back to it. You know, it's not all lost. It's just that that's why I like, I learned a lot about doing it in LA and now I'm going to try it in Kampala and we'll see how it works because there's nothing that it really exists like that here. So we'll see. Yeah. Did you ever use a service like Mediavine or something like that for uh rate nightlife? No, I really would like to do more to promote it, but again, it all requires money cool. and time. I mean, Mediavine <laughs> is a company that like just like through their algorithm, puts ads on your website and because they just start understanding your traffic 
And then you get, okay. you get clicks on that, that then like this, um, couple, I just, well, I only got to interview 50% of the couple. They do nomad, nomadosaurus.com. They're like the biggest travel couple in Australia. And their website gets so much traffic. They use Mediavine and that's how they generate most of their income. They all, it's just, you sync it up with your website and then Mediavine does the west, the rest and you just collect checks. Granted, you have to have a lot of traffic coming to your website, but it's like, I mean, they make six figures off of that. Yeah, I think that's the key. How do you get the traffic? Yeah, right. I mean, I think yeah, nightlife is <laughs> is something that um, people are always interested in seeing and who's there doing what, dressed as what. Like, I don't know. We could probably talk a lot about this uh, post-show, but really interesting because my mind's always in the same headspace. Like, how am I going to drive traffic? How am I going to generate income? How am I going to do it remotely? And I mean, and you're right there as well. Um one thing that really I was thankful for, and it really was nice of you to reach out and let me know, but I, I shared a post of my friend uh, Jennifer Jocelyn, who is in Southeast Asia doing the same thing as us, trying to be you know, location-dependent. She was offering free sort of consultation on um, how to become a, a teacher remotely, I believe. And then you picked up on that, and you reached out to her, and, and now you are teaching with a VIP Kid. Is that correct? Yeah, so I saw your post and then about teaching online English and I was like, I've never done that before. Why not try it? Cuz I haven't I've moved back and I haven't found a job like, you know, one of those fancy expat jobs that I want to get. I have you know, you kind of need to know someone. So my savings is just dwindling and I'm like, what am I going to do? I got to start thinking outside the box, you know? What can I do online? And then I don't know if the universe was just aligning but literally I had that thought and that day I was on Facebook and I saw your post and I was like oh that's exactly what I was thinking like asking for the universe to tell me so I contacted her literally like immediately and she was like let's jump on a call and then like it was great so then she explained everything what VIP kit is and how they have like a flexible schedule and how she teaches online her and her husband how much they love it and they look even looked at other companies because there's many companies that do it so you don't have to just go with VIP kit, but they're like, they pay the most for like the flexibility that they wanted. So I was like, wow, that sounds awesome. Did so you have to get a I literally that? applied. No, because you almost all the other um, companies require it, but because now starting this next few months, the government of China is going to require it. And mainly you're teaching kids in China. But the what VIP do, kid does, which is cool, is they like try to like get a certain type of person. And I would say my experience is minimal. I volunteered for a nonprofit in LA for two years as a writer coach. So they only want you to have to work with kids for like one year. And I had two years, but I'm like working as a writer coach with like high schoolers. That's not teaching English to five-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, yes, I could read and write at a certain level, but those teaching skills are not transferable in my opinion after everything I've learned <laughs> about teaching online. But um, yeah, so like I, I feel they're looking for super positive um, people who can communicate through video very effectively, which I think is like totally makes sense now that I see how they teach kids in English. But anyways, um, she just like explained everything to me and I got super aggressive with the application process. Like I, every day I worked on it, every level. And I had to teach myself how to do a bunch of stuff I'd never done before. How do you set up a classroom? Like, how do you teach something? <laughs> um, there's all these hand signals that they want you to use. You have to learn phonics, you know, like how do you teach their type that there's two, it's different than the phonics we learned in school. You know, it's more phonetic. Um, it's just, I watched YouTube every day for hours. I, w I would Google, I would have to do a demo. Yet there's several phases where you have to do various trainings, various certifications, various demos. I have to do demo. I Google it. And then I look at YouTube and I watch 10 videos on it. And then I try to mimic those videos. <laughs> so you, YouTube is amazing. You can teach yourself anything nowadays. <laughs> It is. And I have used YouTube for this whole enterprise that I've been taking on now for the last five <laughs> years. Um, this is cool. So, but did you allude to only teaching five-year-olds or like what's the age range you've worked with thus far? So basically when you first start, you get certified for a different level. So like I got, you automatically get certified from 
for level two and level three and level. And it's not really by age. It's more by um, English ability, but I would say most level twos are around five or six year olds. And, you know, level three is like six or seven year olds, you know? And, and so um, it's not, I would say it's not easy. It's hard. And I, I think to get through even to where I have now, it's only been a few weeks. It was really a lot of sheer determination and asking Jennifer a lot of questions. So she was like totally awesome, like, and super helpful. Um, and like, you always have a referral teacher. You can't just like apply, not knowing anyone you have, you have a referral teacher, they're your mentor and they kind of train you and walk you through to some extent, I would say. And I have leaned on her and she's been awesome. I just, I don't even haven't met her in person, but I already love her. I think she's great. <laughs> oh yeah, Jennifer's episode but, thirteen on Misfits. So she was my neighbor growing up. She went to the same schools as us, and uh, yeah, she's a sweetheart. I actually uh, just interviewed her husband when I was in Thailand last year because he's doing stand-up comedy all over Asia. Nice, awesome. Um, let's transition into your book because you've written a book at this point called "The Path to." Can you say the last word for me? Navalagala. <laughs> the path to Navalagala is Katrina's book. Yep, you did and, it. Thank you. Uh, phonics, I just listened to your voice. Anyways, can you describe <laughs> the book to us and and why you mo- like what was the motivation for writing it? Um, yeah, it's about my life between age 16 to 23. Um, I went to a different country every year. So um, the chapter, like half the book is about Uganda. Um uh, the remaining one quarter is about Kenya. So almost the whole book is about Kenya and Uganda. Um, but it's kind of, Navalagala is a neighborhood in Kampala, Uganda. So the whole story is building up to the end. I mean, my experience there. Um, but so the earlier countries are um, Czech Republic, India, um, Mexico, and Chile. Mm-hmm. So kind of, um, I just had all these crazy experiences from like almost being killed to like just falling in love to like betrayal. You know, there's all the good things in a story. And I'm like, I just need to write this down. Even if no one reads it, let me just write this down for myself because I, there's no way I could keep this story to myself. It's too good. <laughs> no, that's cool. So when you say 16 to 23, you went to a country every year. I mean, did you leave home at 16 and then start traveling? Or do you, so, you uh, back and forth? The, f- um, the first story is a summer study abroad in high school. I did the AFS study abroad program to Chile. So the, And then uh, the following year, I went to Prague, Eastern Europe, for a summer language program. And then I entered an international university. So my school had campuses in Mexico City and in Kenya and in San Diego. So um, I write a story about my I, – I didn't complete the full year in Mexico, but a little less than that. Um, I was there about a little over six months. And then um, in Kenya, I was there for the full school year. Um, and then I, I wanted to write about India because I only went backpacking through India throughout a month, but it was such a life-changing experience. I had to write about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and there's Egypt too. I did a summer study abroad in Egypt. I don't know how I forgot Egypt what for any high schooler like listening right now, what does it mean to be in an international university? Like, does that mean you pay the same tuition no matter what university you find yourself in? You just got to get yourself there. Like, how does that work when you have those locations around the normally, world? So normally uh, when you're in university here, they call college high school and they call what we would call college, they call university. So I'm always correcting myself because I got, you got used to saying things a certain way. Anyways. So when you go to university, you can study abroad at any school, but those trans, there's a program in which um, one university is recognizing another university's credits and there's a transfer that takes place. I went to the United States international university. It's now called Alliant international university, which is a unique system that is not that it's that, you can be in a camp at any of their three campuses and it's perceived on your transcript as a U.S. university. There's no transferring that occurs. So um, I like one awesome thing about it for me in my experience was that I got the state of California to pay for a lot of it. 
and, um, you know, my tuition was always based on the San Diego campus. So I could be like living in Mexico and Uganda with a like, way cheaper tuition. And it would just like pay for my living as well, which is like super awesome. It prevented me, it enabled me to get out of university like debt free, which is kind of awesome. Ooh, so you, got, you didn't <laughs> hack the system. You just used the resources that were at your disposal, like applying for grants. Is that what I understand? Maybe something in between those, something in between those two options. <laughs> Let's just say it that way. <laughs> oh, really? Like, can you talk about? Because I think yeah. it'd be beneficial for someone listening. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that California back then used very generous with their tuition, you know, tw- tuition grants. And I don't, unfortunately, I think loans are much more popular these days, and they don't give grants the way that they used to. So I don't even think those grants existed. But I used to get California grants and it would just see it as San, as San Diego, $20,000 a year university. But Kenya and New Mexico were like, I think Mexico was like 12,000 a year and Kenya was like 7,000 a year. So, mm-hmm. you know, I continued to get the financial aid, even though, because that's the way the transcript works. It's the C's. It just looks like if you looked at my transcript, it just would look like I did it in San Diego. Mm-hmm. What a cool hack you figured but, out at such a young age. Good for you. But, it's kind of cool because I was studying international relations and I was like, if I'm going to study international relations, why don't I go experience it in other cultures rather than reading about it in books? And it was totally worth it. So it's like, I could have gone to a more prestigious school, but instead I was sitting in Kenya and I took sociology, for example, in Kenya. And I learned about the 42 tribes of Kenya, the gender dynamics and from like the traditional culture and, you know, the modern culture and how they're mixing and like female genital mutilation, circumcision, you know, like, you know, land inheritance among the tribes, you know, that Africa is made up of a handful of ethnicities and all the tribes stem from those ethnicities. For example, there's Bantu people and there's like Bantu tribes in South Africa, West Africa and East Africa and all those tribes, even though they share that root of the Bantu, they have similar sounding languages. They have similar food they eat. They have a similar dance. You know, the Bantu like to like bend their knees and shake their booty and get low. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Whereas other groups like to jump and they're taller, you know, there's those similarities like all across. It's, it's fascinating. So I got to do that instead of reading about it in San Diego. So I totally think it's worth it. And I totally re- recommend it. Yeah. So any high schoolers listening, start applying for those grants and go to one of these universities because you'll get a way more well-rounded experience in my opinion. Um, one thing that is super interesting of you being in Uganda now is that nobody has Wi-Fi, and I think that is so fascinating. So you're on your phone right now using your data because in your home you have no Wi-Fi and there's no opportunity for you to get Wi-Fi? Well, um, so if you are in a business or a restaurant, yes, you can get Wi-Fi or in a hotel. So you know, in a place of business, you can get Wi-Fi, but I wouldn't say it's every business. I would say it's like the higher end ones, um, not really local places. Um, and then technically you can have it in your house. You can get a router, but, um, it's not necessarily faster and it, it's not necessarily, it might be more expensive. So no one does it. Okay. I would say like, so you know, I have a 4G plan, so my internet is very fast, um, and I just use my phone as a hotspot to like all my things. But I would say the main thing is like that concept of unlimited data doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. How much does that cost you a month to get your 4G plan? Um, it just depends because um, for $30, you can get 40 gigs so again, I, I don't even know what that is because I'm used to living in the U S with like, like everything covered, you know, mm-hmm. unlimited everything. So, but I, it's supposed to last like a month and it got sucked down in a week. And it's just like one of those things, like you leave YouTube on and you fall asleep and it goes all night and then your dad has got it. And you're like, no. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's real. <laughs> so like if I were to land at the airport, do they have like SIM cards ready for me just to plug into my phone and get one of these plans? I don't think so. No, the airport terminal is like abysmal in Kampala or or Uganda. It's like non-existent. Yeah. Okay. Is Kampala the capital? Like what's the capital? 
So the capital is Kampala, but the place where the airport is called Entebbe, which is in a different city. So that's why I kind of hesitated because I'm like, actually, you wouldn't be really landing in Kampala. You land in Entebbe. <laughs> and how far is that from where you're at? It's about um, – it depends on traffic. It can be anywhere from half hour to one hour. Okay. kind of depends. Okay. Yeah. I would uh, say it's like the dis- – like it's like Long Beach to LA, you know? It's like okay. the neighboring city. Right on. So you have this book out. Have you sold any copies? I mean, do people know about it? How long have you? I don't how long think so. Um, a little over a year. Um, I haven't really been marketing it. Um, I'm still figuring out how to do that. I'm making a podcast from it, which is available on all podcast platforms under the same name. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I do certain things like writing just as a passion and then like the money aspect is such an afterthought that I'm mm. like, eh, if I get motivated at some point, maybe I'll <laughs> figure out how to make money off that. See with right not rate nightlife. I love doing it so much that making money is kind of an afterthought, which maybe the, maybe this is like my great downfall. I don't know, but I feel like it always has to be no matter what you do all about the quality. Like I wanted the book to be well-written. I wanted it to not be boring. You know, and I'm working on a second book as well. And I'm my goal is for the reader to be entertained, you know. And um, even with Rate Nightlife with the Kampala, what I'm working on now, it's like, yes, I want to know how to make money off it. But more important to me personally is that I see Uganda in a certain light. I see it as like this very vibrant culture with amazing dancing, especially dancing more than anything, but music people sing like I have a roommate that's a girl like she's washing clothes she sings people we had a bunch of family over here a few weeks ago they're just singing music singing dancing partying having a good time this is kind of what the culture is all about but obviously like we talked before the stereotypes are not there so I just think that there needs to be more images on YouTube there need to be more images on the internet like positive images you know, like French Montana does a video in Uganda and it's like street kids with torn clothes. Like it's fucked up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's cool. Who is that's this person? A, Who's French Montana? Like French Montana. He's like a top rapper. Like oh, okay. I can, most of your audience, like if they ever know anything about Uganda, it's like fucking French Montana's video, which the song is dope and the dancing's dope. But like, why are you just portraying people as poor when, you know, Ugandans don't wear torn clothes like that. And they're like you, it's very rare to see that, you know, mm-hmm. actually they're like much more, they dress, you know, much more British and upscale than we do on average, I would say. But, you know, it's just like positive images getting out there. Like that's kind of what I'm interested in. How am I going to make money off it? I don't know. But I mean, I kind of have the things I'm passionate about and I'm driven to do those things. I feel you there. I feel you. And I think going back to your book though, it's like, since you already have it published and it's out there, like I have the same issue with my like online course. I already created it, but I have to market it and get people to know it's out there. And that's where I'm just like, Ugh, I don't want to do it. But I have a, a, a guess, a friend at this point, Derek Murphy, who's been on the episode or on the podcast who does creative indie where he teaches self-published people. Did you self-publish? I'm assuming you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Teaches self published self published authors to like how to make real money, you know, real passive income. Oh, I'm gonna link up with him. Yeah, he just hosted a retreat in France for writers. He does like month long retreats in castles, and he teaches these people like how to like one write a book in like a week or not or month, and then he teaches them how to like make real money on it. And he's a wizard. He's like amazing. What he does? Yeah. Um. Anyways, audience, if you're writer, I'll send you the link. It's in the show notes, Katrina. You'll get the link as well. But that's cool, and I, I I love where your head's at. One, having the experience with uh, RateNightLife.com and then trying to bring that to Uganda. Like These are the, the niches that I love it when expats share their ideas with me because you can make great money in these environments in just applying the knowledge that you've acquired from past endeavors that we just sort of take for granted getting in the States. You know, you go to another country that has a tongue scraper like India, for example, which is what my friend's dad did back in the sixties. He's like, Oh, that's a good idea. And there's tongue scrapers in every single Walmart because of him, you know, 
Like wow. there's just so many cool ways to like take our knowledge into these cultures and apply something positive for the people or observe something that they're using that's super um, unique, creative and useful and bring it back to our culture in the U S or Canada, wherever you're from and make tons of money on it, you know? And I like where your head's at. I think it's really cool and how passionate you are and how you want to do it right. I'm the same, but in the end, it all boils down to marketing. Like, we're full-time <laughs> yeah, fucking marketers, so dude. Like you have a, a very, I'm, I haven't read it, but I'm assuming it's a well-written book that really just pours your heart. You poured your heart and soul into, but like, I think you have one review. I looked on Amazon, dude. We got to get it out there. We got, we need people. To I, like know, I know, it, you know, I know, um, it is actually a funny note. Like I read the review. I'm assuming it's somebody who doesn't like you. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which yes. I think anybody yeah. could it's easily like a- extract that knowledge because it's not like you have tons <laughs> yeah. of bad reviews. You have one person who's like trolled you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I know who that is too. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. I have trolls yeah. too. It's part of the process. No, but the, the annoying thing is like people in Uganda, they can't buy off Amazon. Like okay. Amazon is a U.S. market, a Canadian market, and then Europe to a lesser extent. So I kind of feel like for the American market, I want to try to promote the podcast, I would say, mm-hmm. um, because I think it it's would be nice for that. And then, um, you know, Ugandans, they still buy books in bookstores, which we don't really do in the U.S. at all. So it's just it's just kind of it's different. Mm-hmm. How's um, yeah. your son adjusting? Like how is he, do you have him full-time school? Are you homeschooling him? How's that working? He, I enrolled him in an international British boarding school. Um, the schools are very, very, very expensive. So I would say it was, you know, one of the more affordable ones and he's having a hard time. And I think that I just take for granted how used to, how I'm used to traveling how I can somehow adapt and blend to any local culture. Cause what I've lived in like eight countries now or something, you know? So for me, it's like second nature. And I think that, um, for Sunday, it's really hard. And his only exposure is he's lived in Hermosa beach in Newport beach. So, you know, I'm my poor child. I took him from like this extremely super affluent neighborhoods in California and um, just dropped him here, you know, in the the tropical jungle. So um, it's been really, really, really hard transition, um, you know. But we, I just try to keep it positive, and we take one day at a time. Because, like, you know, he's like, people make fun of me for my accent, you know. Um, the sense of humors don't match up, you know. I understand the Ugandan sense of humor, but he just doesn't get it. There's a lot of little tiny things that are more difficult, how to get to and from school, you know, just there's it's just you don't just jump in your car and get anything you want anytime. There's not why just not having Wi-Fi for a child that's nine is like devastating, you know, (laughs) we had to have a talk about like how we have to just limit our data time to like a certain amount of time per day, you know, but (laughs) stuff it's tough you know interesting yeah i think this is a a real example of you know parenting obviously but parents who maybe even idealize not that you're one of them but this life abroad and then when they get there there's a certain reality to it like i interviewed a couple that took their children from newport down to argentina and they his wife was so excited for this experience and then the reality set in and she realized, well, this is actually more for the kids than it is for me. And the language barrier was something that I think was a big struggle for her. And it turned into, I think, a, a, a pleasurable enough experience, but one that like after the year was up, she didn't want to continue. Like, no, let's go back where her husband's like, this is the life for me. You know, like I want to stay. Oh, wow, wow. So okay. I think, I mean, I get a lot of, listeners who write me saying like, I love what you're doing. I'm drawing a lot of inspiration off people who are doing it. I plan to do it for myself, but I think it's also important to bring in the reality for you, for example, and your son and your son is struggling and he is now the foreign kid in a very foreign environment after coming from, you know, the Newport beach area. And I mean, do you see him overcoming this? Do you see him being able to integrate and enjoy it at some point? I think that um, when you move somewhere new, 
and you're doing it the way we did it. So, for example, we moved to Abu Dhabi. We had a job set up. The job sets you up in a house. So the transition is really easy relatively to what we're doing, which is like, I have a group of friends here. I know people, but I'm basically like, I have to find a place to live. I have to figure out where to go to. He's going to go to school. I have to find out where to go to the grocery store. I have to figure out how, you know, I have to, you know, there's like a lot of things that I have to just figure out on the fly in a non-structured environment. So making a transition like that is way harder. And the beginning is really hard. What will happen knock on wood, what I hope will happen is that we just get settled finally because I'm in a place temporarily and I've been looking for someone else to live for a while. And I'm trying to figure out if I can get what I want in my budget and then who's going to live with us and all that. And how am I going to furnish it? And how am I going to pay for electricity? And like, there's a million things I have to figure out. So once we get settled you know, what will happen is I think we'll just like, and I'll get some income hopefully coming in from VIP kid. And I figure out that once everything settles down with regards to where we're living and our income and everything, then we're going to get into a routine, you know? And then as parents, we always try to adjust to make our kids happy to some extent, or I do with Sunai, you know, you know, I, he likes to go to a cafe and like, He'll have like a strawberry milkshake and a hamburger or a waffle and then he'll like have Wi-Fi for an hour. And then we just do that like twice a week and he's like has something to look forward to. And there's like, you know, kids, I feel like they really need like stability and order and predictability. You know, they're semi thrives in a routine and you throw them in a different environment without any predictability because I am not locked down a routine yet. It's making creates a lot of uncertainty and anxiety. Mm-hmm. So he's experiencing anxiety because of our routine right now. But we'll, I'm confident that within like a few months, we'll settle into something and then everything will improve. Yeah. You know, um, and so I just think that pe- keep in mind that the first three months are going to be tough. And that's just how it is. If, and, but once children, you know, as long as a parent, your perception, your perceptive of you know, what, what you need to do for your child, you know, like maybe like, for example, my son's favorite food is like black beans and rice. Well, they don't really have black beans here in Uganda. They have brown beans, but he doesn't like the brown beans. So I try different beans, be- finally find ones he likes. And then he, I just make those and he's like happy. They don't, simple things make kids happy, but as you just have to put in that extra effort. to to figure it out. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's hilarious too, that, um, instead of, you know, like kids in America going to a theme park or Chuck E. Cheese, like twice a week, he gets to go to a cafe where he gets Wi-Fi for an hour and he's psyched on that. (laughs) He's just like, just give me (laughs) Wi-Fi. But it's also that age because like a five-year-old is not going to be as obsessed with Wi-Fi as like a 12-year-old, you know? So I feel like it. he's just at that age where he's starting to like understand the internet is like the most awesome thing on the planet, you know? And I, I think that that that's a nine-year-old, you know? <laughs> no, yeah. I think, and also the perspective you're giving him is so valuable, even though he maybe doesn't appreciate it now, like, you know, 10, ten years from now, 15 years from now, whether um, he's back in the States or he's in France. Like it's just, that's just so valuable for him to have this moment in time. I think. I hope so. <laughs> What's uh, the timeline? Really- Go ahead. You finish. I don't mean to interrupt you. Oh, I was going to say another weird thing that he experiences. He's like in Newport, I was too dark and here I'm too light. <laughs> so, you know, he's going through mean? a lot of like, too dark and like, too you light. know, he's like, well, he's like half black and half white. So uh, I feel like, being in Newport, you know, he's a minority and he's didn't really, he felt like people picked on him because, you know, there's the whole racial issue. And then here he feels like he gets picked on because he's like lighter than everyone. Mm-hmm. So he also has to deal with being an interracial child and all that too. So Interesting. Um, not yeah. to get too personal and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I mean, does, does he talk to his father? Like where's his father throughout all this? So he's still in Abu Dhabi, um, and he does video chat with him on a regular basis. And, um, you know, I always think about maybe I'll be in Uganda forever, but if not, um, I always consider moving back to uh, probably moving to Dubai, you know. So just, you know, I'm going to see, I'm going to test out Uganda for a year or two, see how it goes. But um, 
you know, that's the great thing about being a true global citizen and having that experience of feeling comfortable living abroad and going anywhere at any time. Like, honestly, like Dubai is like my fallback. Like I literally know, like I can go to Dubai and make somewhere between 50 and 70,000 tax free housing's paid for by your employer. And, um, you pretty much don't have any expenses in addition to that other than your internet and your transportation and your, you know, your cell phone. So, I mean, like financially, if I just want to work for someone else and boost myself up a little bit, like I can just go there and work because just the fact that it's tax free is like a 30%, 25% boost to your income compared to being in the States. And then your housing is paid for. And why is it so tax-free? I, I mean, since you are still, I'm assuming, a California resident. Um, the in the U.S. has a law that if you make under a hundred thousand, um, you do not have to pay taxes if you stay out of the country for a certain number of years, uh, some number days in a year. Sorry, three hundred and something days. Three hundred thirty. So yeah. that's federal, though, not state. Yeah. Um, state. Um, I think the state. Well, I don't know. Maybe you know better than me, but I think the state of California has an exemption some sort but i wouldn't want to say and say the wrong thing and mislead people but i wouldn't want to say either but yeah i, I, yeah. I mean i've been out of the country too but for i had an account yeah ahead. i had an accountant to it and we didn't have to pay so nice. well, yeah. <laughs> go, go to the people that have the right information <laughs> yeah go to the accountant. <laughs> well katrina this is super cool i'm so proud of you and excited for you as on, on this new endeavor in uganda and so yeah you said a year or two but i think that's a great plan yeah, unless you invite me to Asia first, and then maybe I'll go check it out as well. It sounds awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff going on there, but I think that you're in a good spot, especially the way you describe just the the budding economy, you being on the ground, you having the knowledge that you do with you know past endeavors, and then obviously your knowledge of the country that you've spent enough time in at this point, I think there's opportunity there that you should probably stick it out and see what you can uh, grow. I mean, are there people that like, are there VCs that you could maybe approach to help you uh, with some of the capital sort of expenses of your ideas? Oh yeah, definitely. Yes. I already have people interested to be honest. I just um, have to, um, I'm just very cautious about things like that. You know, I just think that if you're accepting someone's money, you really have to be, have, there's no guarantee to anything in life, but in my mind, I would feel obligated that I have to guarantee this is going to make money. I've tested it. You know, I've already actually been going and I'm on my way. That That's the, that's really when you should be accepting people's money, when you're already making money and you're already successful and you know, you're very, very certain on how to compound on that success. So, you know, you should be, I mean, I, I, my philosophy on it is you should be self-funded up until a certain point and be very cautious about taking anyone's money. But yeah, that's a lot of that there because people, um, you know, want to invest their money. Um, I know Ugandans in the U S and Ugandans here that, um, want to invest because they know that there's, you can make your money a lot quicker and a lot more of it investing in developing countries there's just a bit more risk but i see the opportunity more than the risk to be honest yeah because i mean either way the amount of knowledge and just i think overall satisfaction from applying the yeah just taking the risk is so worth it for i think people like us at least i mean i love throwing myself into those environments and trying to figure it out yeah, definitely. If you could uh, speak to one listener out there, say a single mom who's looking to do something similar, what would you say to them to help them make that first step? Um, sometimes that you just got to take a risk and do something scary. That doesn't mean don't plan it out extensively, do all your research, ask everyone you know about how to do it the right way, be prepared. But once you do all of that, um, just be willing to take the the risk and the chance for a better life because, um, you know, like they always say, like you can't just do the same thing over and over again and expect a different result. So if you're sitting in California or somewhere else that's really expensive and you're making good money, you've done everything right in your life as far as education, you work hard, you save, you don't spend, you, you know, you're frugal, you don't waste your money on whatever and you still can't even save like $100 a month, think about what you can do to change the situation. And it does require a big, step and a big change maybe what seems like you know taking a big leap but i think it's worth the chance because even if you fail you can just go back to that crappy situation at the end of the day probably so why not just like at least i want to look back and say you know what i tried 
So, you know, I, I think, I, I think it's going to be worth it. We'll see. We'll have to check in in, in a year from now. <laughs> let's do that. No, let's yeah, We'll uh, make that commitment now and we'll hear uh, about your successes or your new move to uh, Dubai. <laughs> um, just, just for the audience. Uh, can you just say your book and where to find it, please? Yeah, it's Path Navalagala. It's on Amazon, um, but you can listen to the podcast on Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available. So if you just want to like listen to it on your commute to and from work, I recommend the podcast. And that is already up and running. So if I type in the Path to Nabulagala on Spotify, it'll come up. <laughs> yes, it will. And then if uh, somebody wants to reach out to you, do you have a blog or some way that people can contact you directly? Yeah, definitely. Um, I that um, it, it's through Anchor, um, and then the podcast is through Anchor, and um, I have all my contact information on that. But I can also give it to you if you want to add it to the episode. That'd be cool. Cool. Yeah. So, folks, check in the show notes for the link to the book and uh, Katrina's contact info. If you have any want any information on how to teach VIP kid or move to Uganda. Yeah, totally. Cool. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time and love you. Awesome. Katrina, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. What an inspiration. What a cool, cool thing you're doing with you and your son in Kampala, Uganda. I can't wait to come visit, experience the culture, the nightlife, the food, and just the budding economy in Uganda. Remember, folks, she has a really cool book out. You should definitely check out. You can get it on Amazon. I've provided a link in the show notes below. Path to Nabulagula chronicling her life from age 16 to 23, primarily in Kenya and Uganda. Thank you all so much for listening. I think you all are so very, very beautiful. And I look forward to seeing you in next week's episode. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.